to to understand how much that it is that you loved us, who you are, how amazing that you are, God. And I just pray that you would help us to do that and help us, God, to be amazed by you and be overwhelmed by how awesome that you truly are. God, I pray that um, you would bless our times together, uh, help us to uh, rightfully divide your word, help us, help me, God, to teach things about you that is right and accurate, and uh, and please help our, just guide our conversations through your Holy Spirit, God. Be with us. Um, uh, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for everything. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we always want to start this with the gospel, and I'm going to jump back into Romans chapter 5 again. Um, we read from Romans 5 last week, and this week I'm going to read um, 18 through 21, which I have on the board. I've written some of the scriptures that we're going to try to get through that's not in the, in the study notes on the board. So I may call on some people to read, kind of Rick style, but first we're going to jump in. Let me read Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 18, just to get us going on the gospel. Yeah. Uh-oh. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. This is talking about Adam. It's talking about the condemnation, this is the transgression that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden. There resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. This is talking about Jesus Christ and what he did, his one act of righteousness. And the way that this is worded is really important. It says resulted justification of all life. This isn't talking about just sin. This is why that there is justification for there to be life on planet Earth. That's amazing. If Christ had never came to die for us, to die for our sins, there would be no reason for God to have continued life on this planet. So it's amazing here. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, even so, the obedience of the one, that's Christ Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is so important for us to understand because... That's why we're here. We're, we're given another chance at life, first of all, from where Adam rebelled against God in the garden. Jesus Christ came not only to give us a chance at life, but a chance of redemption from our sins. And that's what this is talking about. And God, He gave us the law. And so we can see the law all through the Old Testament this is specifically talking about the Mosaic Law, which is the Ten Commandments. And he gave this law so that, that we could, it's a huge wall for us to come crashing into as Christians. And we understand that God is perfect and he's holy. And we cannot obey all of the commandments perfectly. And we have to do that in order to be 
justified when we stand before a holy God. So this is so important. This is why that, that God gave us the law so that it says here that our transgressions would increase. This is God giving us clear understanding of what it is to sin before him. And that's what the law does for us. It helps us to see that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ who came to die for us so that we could be made right before a holy God. We talked a couple weeks ago about um, imputation, the doctrine of imputation, where Adam's sin was imputed to all of his offspring, as it talks about in Romans chapter 5. And that imputation of sin was transferred, imputed to Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And all of his perfect righteousness and holiness is imputed to us whenever we believe. That's, that's this, um, this amazing, it's called the great exchange. And this is, uh, this is why we're here. This is the most important thing to get right is the gospel. And so everything else that we, that we study, it all builds off of this. And it helps us to better understand the God that we serve. The God who loved us enough to give us life, to give us that second chance, and to redeem us, which is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So last week, jumping back into our study, um, we talked a little bit about special revelation um, and different ways that God communicates to us. We talked about natural revelation and special revelation that I've got up here on the board. Um, we we talked about the canon of Scripture being closed. So there is, that's why that we say that the Bible is sufficient. is because the, there is nothing else that God communicates to us as a people. There are no more prophets today. If there's prophets and apostles today, people that are claiming to be that, run. Because they are lying. These people do not exist today because the Bible is sufficient. He's given us everything that we need. It's one of the things that Brandon talked about in his message this morning, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. It was. It was. It was. The best one I've heard yet. <laughs> we also talked about how that God reveals himself as light, and he exposes everything that's hidden. There's no place that we can hide and get away from God. We can't go into a dark room and sin and do things that we think are in secret because there is nothing secret when it comes to God. He is omnipresent and His light shines and exposes everything in our lives. And that's what we are as image bearers. We're supposed to be shining that light of, of the gospel to, to mankind which exposes men's hearts, which is painful. That's why that the gospel has always been something that um, has very, been very controversial. And we've had a lot of our brothers and sisters that have been martyred in other countries all across the world throughout church history because of this very fact. Because it is, um, it is very revealing of uh, man's true nature when, when the gospel shines the light into men's hearts. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> We also talked about how that God revealed himself as a person, that person named Jesus Christ, and how amazing that is, that he came um, and became one of us and lived among us and uh, became truly man while he was also truly God. And then we also talked a little bit about does the Trinity break the law of non-contradiction? 
And we said no. We explained what the law of non-contradiction is, and we understand that to say that, that God is one in essence and three in persons does not break the law of non-contradiction and how that God is a God of order. So that's just a quick review of the things that we talked about last week. And we are going to be jumping into church history on the Trinity, which is on page 18. And this is not a, this is just going to be a little, a little touch. And later on, we're going to get into a little bit more church history on, um, on the Trinity. But we're going to just take this in small chunks to kind of help us to build on that knowledge that we're, um, that we're kind of building upon to try to help us to better understand the Trinity. So if we look here on page 18, it says, The church is accused today of inventing the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. And this is something that I, I don't know if any of you guys have had Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door. But this is one of the things that they often will point out. Um, they'll say, oh, you know, the Trinity is something that was invented at the Council of Nicaea. Um, and that's simply not the case. That's not true. And, but that's, you know, it's, it seems like they spend more time, you know, we, we've talked about what apologetics is. They have their own apologetics, too. And their apologetics is to try to undermine the Trinity. So that's one of the things when us as believers, when we say we believe in the Trinity, they have been taught and trained how to try to discredit that. Um, and sometimes they're good at it if we don't know what, what, what we're talking about. And that's part of why that this study is really important. I've got a question here. It says, why did the church need to define the Trinity? Why did the church need to define the Trinity? So... Open it up. Any any thoughts or comments on that? Because it's very confusing. <laughs> it is. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's essential. It is. It's essential. Yeah. Anything else? Our religion is theist, which is one God, and they probably try to make <coughs> make the confusion there of three separate gods, but we see the Trinity as one. Yeah. Yeah. That's what mo Muslims claim that we believe they believe they say that we believe that in three separate gods because they also don't understand the trinity so yeah yeah absolutely and muslim and you know that came about after the council of nicaea um but the council of nicaea was um was probably almost probably 700 years or or some seven eight hundred years before um the the whole muslim movement uh, came about but yeah so but it is very very important for for um, for the church to know and how to define the Trinity one is yeah I just want to say when you go into something else is that the council they weren't um, their whole thing they were trying to determine Christ is God but how does that look considering he came to earth as a man and the same thing is is true of why we need to know about the Trinity is because of that same thing. Was Christ God or not? Right. That has to be, you know, verified. That it has does. to be known. Otherwise, you have a problem. Absolutely, because you get into heresy. Yeah. And and it's a gospel issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Salvation issue. Yeah. The gospel is triune. That's one of the things that we're going to be talking about eventually in this study is how 
each member of the Trinity is involved in the gospel and the saving of man's souls, um, which is really is is really amazing. Um, yeah, so men's souls, that I would say that's another, you know, because it, it can lead to, uh, it does lead to complete heresy, and it, it is a salvation issue. And also, we're dealing with the clarity of Scripture and how um, how that we can can see this the Scriptures more clearly. The more that we understand about the Trinity, who God truly is, um, and all the attributes of God, the easier it is for us to understand the Bible. When we go to the Bible and we start reading, we know who we know the person that we're reading about in a greater way, and it helps us um, to better exposit or better understand the Scripture when, when we're reading it. So that's um, that's an important thing. The next point I have here says God reveals Himself by what we call progressive revelation. And I've got this written here on the board: um, progressive revelation. So we understand that the Bible is sufficient, and this is special revelation we talked about last week, is what that is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture, in a po as opposed to natural revelation, is how God is revealed through nature, right? So special revelation is talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now progressive revelation isn't a number three. We only have two, th two ways that God reveals himself, natural revelation and special revelation. Progressive revelation is something different, right? It falls underneath special revelation, right? And so what that means is um, it, it's, it's not new revelation that we're talking about here. We don't believe in new revelation. Um, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, which is what we're talking about here. But um, progressive revelation means that God, by the passing of time, he reveals more about himself to his church. He reveals more of himself to his church. And he does this in a way that's most unusual. He does this by allowing heresies to come in. He allows heresies to rise up about himself in order to force the church to look deeper into who he is and to better define him, right? And to do uh, the very best that we can to try to define who God is. So this is something that's amazing. And I got a quote here um, from Leonard Ravenhill. It says, isn't it amazing that God gives breath to a man who is going to blaspheme his name all day long. That's amazing. That God sustains people. God allows people. He gives people breath. He's the one that causes our hearts to beat. He's the one that causes air to enter into our lungs. We have life because of God. And that very life, sometimes the breath that he gives us people used to curse him with, but he still gives them that, that breath. That's amazing that God does that. And there's always a reason for that. There's always a reason, and that's where, where this progressive revelation comes in. Because whenever these heresies rise up against God, then the church stand, takes a stance. And we, we stand and we say, no, what you're saying about God is wrong. So we're forced to become more and more sharp in the way that we define him. And so that's, that's what this means. So again, it's not number three. We don't have three ways that we understand God or God reveals himself. This falls under special, special revelation. 
Any questions on that? Does that make sense? So, would it be that we could say God has revealed everything in the scriptures, but he has, in giving the scriptures, he has given us um, situations and experiences of people so that he could show, like when he talks about, I am a God of love, or I'm the one and only. So then he allows things to happen, which is recorded, to show how he loves us, and to show that he's the one and only true God. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he allows these things because he loves us, and because he wants us to understand him and love him in a greater way, yeah. right? So the so yeah. the truth is, is always been there, whether you're talking about the Old or the New Testament. That's right. It's just that he gives us different examples, so to speak. Right. All through the Bible. Right. So express that. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Brandon this morning, the very first illustration he used about how atheists set out to try to disprove God. But God turns that around because they start to see and understand him in a sharper and a more precise way, which sometimes leads them into conversion which is amazing. We see lots of stories of that. And the same thing is true with the church as a whole and doctrine and theology is that, you know, God allowed, there was no um, dispute over the Trinity up until, you know, the first three or four hundred years of church history. And then all of a sudden there started becoming some dispute. Well, God allowed that because he wanted to, for the church to dive deeper into this topic and to understand the Trinity in a greater way. So it is an act of love. It really is, because God loves us, and he wants us to love him in the right way, and not to have a wrong idea about who he is, if that makes sense. Okay. Very good, very good. And uh, one of the things, too, that we should point out with progressive revelation is, um, you know, Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God, and profitable for teaching and I stopped I stopped it here because I've heard a lot of people um, friends of mine that I've I've had um, conversations with that have got into some false doctrines and um, apostate churches I would say that that they say well you know I don't I don't really listen to what anybody has said in in history. I don't care about reading commentaries. I don't I don't care about um, having a study Bible. You know, I just um, I read the Bible and the Holy Spirit reveals to me what it what that He means, and I don't need anybody to teach me. Uh, I use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who teaches me. And this same friend, he he went so far as to say, you know, at one point that he really doesn't pay much attention to the Bible. That the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is who teaches him now. That he completely relies on on the Holy Spirit. Now this is entering into mysticism. One hundred percent mysticism. God gave us teachers, and it is a discredit to God and His gift to us to say, "I don't need commentaries. I don't need to learn from people." that God has given this great ability of teaching to. That's really discrediting God. I think it's very important for us to, to study commentaries and look at, at things to 
to fact check ourselves to make sure that what we believe about scripture is true and accurate uh, have a good study Bible I think that's important because you know, God did give us teachers he gave us teachers for a reason right we don't just rely on our own thoughts and our own ideas um, there's a reason he gave us teachers and he's blessed certain men throughout church history um, above others there's some men that he's truly blessed with really good ability to teach and those are men that we should pay attention to of course we don't put any man above scripture no. we always have to compare everything that anybody says to scripture because that is our ultimate authority saying that but we can't dismiss teaching we can't dismiss um, men in history, in church history, good commentaries and things like that. There's a reason that we have those things. And we don't want to give, we don't want to do a disservice to God by dismissing those things that Can God has give, gifted us with. Can I add something here? Yeah. So, uh, when somebody has a dream and they say, God told me to leave my wife and marry this other woman which I know of a guy who said this, yeah. and he did this. But nobody told him, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Chuck. <coughs> is it consists this dream from God or from Satan? Mm -hmm. And the way you can tell that is it consistent with the scripture. Of the scripture? Right. Does the Bible endorse those actions? No, no, it doesn't. So he was being led by Satan yeah. had entered his dreams. And because he had a dream, he thought it was authentic. Yeah. Probably like Muhammad. Yeah. Well, did he want to leave her in the first place, too? Oh, sure. <laughs> I didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say, like, yeah. dreaming about leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> I met him after he was already met to, did this deed. He didn't look very happy with, with the new one. Yeah. 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 But this is also how... Uh, we're seeing such a rapid decline in morality, you know, versus what's based in the Bible is Christian denominations are saying, well, in the days that the Bible was written, that's what God revealed to people. But now his spirit is revealing new things, including same-sex marriage and yeah. on and on and on, you know. And so you're just in this sea of confusion and chaos. Yeah. You know, unless you get back to some absolute. That's right. The sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. yeah. The God only speaks to us through Scripture. Yeah. Mike, maybe this is just a semantic issue, but would not some of these people claim that that's kind of progressive revelation after the initial, uh, what's been revealed from scripture no they would nature? they would say it was special revelation they would say it was special revelation yeah because special revelation would be god communing communicating directly to a person right that that would be that's what only happened through the apostles and the prophets and so what they're saying is well god has communicated to me directly and so that means what I need to do, if God has di directly communicated to me, I better start adding to the back of my Bible. I need to start adding books back here, right? If God's directly speaking to you. So that, that would be under the, the category of, um, of special revelation, not progressive. Progressive is taking special revelation and sharpening it. 
right? It's progressing in those doctrines and and uh, progressing in our understanding of what God has already said, right? No, no longer speaking to us, but what He's already revealed, and we're sharpening ourselves in that. That's progressive revelation. Does that make sense? Well, I guess you know the word progressive is used in different contexts, and I'm thinking politically. Oh. <laughs> um, for example, yeah. it's used widely yeah. that things have just progressed from the Constitution to right. it's, it's evolved. Yeah, and that and that term would surface. Yeah, sure. yeah, in politics. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, in theology. No, this is a term. This is a theological term. Yes. Yeah, it's a theological term, and it's it's that's that's what it means. We see another another example of that even in the book of Daniel. You know, in Daniel chapter twelve, where he says. You know, you're not going to understand these things that I'm writing until the the end of the end of days. You know, that's a that's a progressive revelation. He's saying things are going to um, to progress to where we can understand Bible prophecy in a greater way um, in the last days. That's kind of an example of progressive revelation. It's not special revelation. It's not God continuing to reveal things to us. He's already revealed all that we need to know. It's sharpening those things that he's already given us. So, does that make sense? Okay. I've got a quote here that's pretty interesting. Um, in ver in uh, well, it's not a quote. It's, it's me talking, so I guess it's my own quote. Um, <clears throat> verse 19, or not verse... Wow. Let me let me uh, let me start over. Page nineteen, in the middle of the page, it says, "The theory of evolu of evolution began to dominate the thinking of philosophers in the nineteenth century, most of which came from the philosophy of Fed of Frederick Hegel. They carried the idea of evolution beyond the boundaries of species and into the realm of almost every philosophical idea." Religion was also a target of this thinking, that the idea of the simple to the complex as applied to religion caused some men to start a school called the Religious Historical School. They developed an ideology of religion that goes something like this. All religions developed in a similar pattern beginning with animism beginning with animism. So, this is, um, evolution as we know, it, 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 it did go well beyond just the, the idea of the way that the human species evolved, right? There was many applications that this type of worldview, this type of thinking um, kind of rolled into, and religion was one of them. And, so the, the philosophers, they started looking, some of these guys in this school, the historical school, religious historical school, they started looking through the pages of scripture and they said, well, the Bible, it really teaches evolution too. And it starts with this idea of animism. Now, what is animism? Does anybody know what animism is off the top of their head? It's like when like plants or animals have like soul or like animated like human-like characteristics that's right that's exactly right yeah it's the idea that they're living souls in 
something that's inanimate, right? It can um, be spirits or animals or different things like that. Yeah. Water bugs. Water bugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Material. Yep, that's like right. Rocks and crystals and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It, it can. Um, and this idea, it came through examining um, primitive cultures um, and, the, and their strong view of, of animism uh, that we can still see today in some, some cultures that we would consider um, primitive. You know, totem pose is one of the, is one of the examples of this. Uh, statues, idols of wood, rock, stone, etc., stuff like that. So, um, and these philosophers in the school, they assumed animism um, in the book of Genesis because we find Eve talking with a snake. <laughs> yeah. So they, sa they said, well, you know, not only is Eve talking to a, a snake, but what about Balaam? You know, Balaam was talking to his donkey, <laughs> and his donkey was talking back, right? So they, start, they started correlating some of these things with primitive cultures and saying that the church um, evolved this way into monotheism, which we'll get to. And so I have a question here. Did Eve literally have a conversation with a serpent, and did Balaam literally have a conversation with a donkey? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. How do we explain this? Your turn. <laughs> uh, I think Satan spoke through the serpent and God spoke through the donkey. Yeah. Or an angel spoke through the donkey. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, God is the way that we that we explain this, right? Because God created nature he created everything that's natural um, and he can interrupt those things right he can interrupt those things it's kind of like the natural course if I had a ball or if I took my <coughs> cup and I dropped it it was it would hit the ground that's na that's gravity um, but if somebody caught it before it hit the ground something would interrupt that natural thing that natural occurrence and that's what God does sometimes as he reaches in and he catches it and he reaches into uh, our natural world and does things like that, or he did in the past, and he still can because he's God. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which prophet was it that had God to turn the the sundial back? Is that Elijah? No. Who? Hezekiah. Was it Hezekiah? Yeah. A little foggy. I think it was Hezekiah. It I can't a remember. Prophet. It was. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember Rick? What was the question again? I was looking down. <laughs> yeah, who, who, um, the prophet that God turned the sun backwards and caused the... Joshua. Joshua. Okay, Joshua. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> so it talks, too, about the rocks crying out. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, Jesus said that. So it's not like God would be crying out through the rocks. Right. But it just, but God, but it, all creation cries for God, whether there's a yeah. soul or not. Yeah. So you're saying so they could, they could see this animism in that? That I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's you can't just say God was speaking through the rocks because they didn't actually do it. But right. Jesus said they would if the people didn't do it. Yeah. So it's something that had to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's, you know, God's well, God's beyond all that. <laughs> yeah. Some of that can be uh, like in Psalms when it talks about the the mountains leap, 
or in Isaiah, the mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees will clap. Well, obviously that is, is an expression of things right. in the case. And like with animals, mm -hmm. God can speak through them. <coughs> but they don't have any rational ability. It's, yeah. it's not a, you know, something that is given to them. Yeah. So it is something that God has to, uh, he works through the animal. My question was, when I was looking at this, was this a mind-to-mind -mind thing? I mean, uh, did Eve actually hear something, or was it in her her thoughts that she, in the same way with the donkey, did, did he actually, like, you know, there, look at the donkey's face, and are you talking to me? Mm -hmm. Type yeah. thing, or was it a mind-to-mind -mind type thing? Yeah, I think it, I think it was actual language, because I think that's why, especially we see with Balaam, he was shocked. <laughs> he was scared to death, and then when he found out there was an angel fixing to whack his head off, <laughs> he really got nervous, you know. So, um, yeah, so that's it's 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 pretty interesting when you start looking at it. But it's amazing how that these guys, you know, when when you look deep and hard enough, and you really want to believe something, how you can can start twisting things into making them appear to to fit your context or whatever it is that that you um, that you want it to say well, like with, with i think of animism is that this is something man has long ago from the beginning actually i guess is that when they were trying to replace god what do they do like when you talk about like totems or you talk about yeah you know statues or whatever it's men trying to replace god with what they want to worship so that's right. To admit that they're wrong and that they need to worship the true God. That's right, because the true God doesn't fit their lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Over on page twenty, it says their next assumption was that religion evolved from animism to polytheism. Now, what's polytheism? Many gods. Many gods. That's right. Many gods. Um, it's found in a lot of different cultures. We saw that in Rome. We saw we see that in the Hindu culture. Um, there's. It's still today. We we see a lot of polytheism. And they got this idea from um, the Bible talking about Baal and Molech. Um, you know, Baal was. A god that was over the weather. Molech was the god of fire, right? Um, and we, we start seeing um, some of this um, language in the Bible, but does it show that the Bible is polytheistic? Somebody read Judges 10.6. Who wants to read Judges 10.6? Who's got their Bible? Judges 10, 6. It's a little bit harder to find, right? 10, 6? 10, 6. Just the one verse? Yep. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Asherahs, the, God, uh, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Yeah. 
So you could kind of see, like, if you really wanted to twist Scripture, you could see polytheism in that, if you really didn't want to believe in the one true God. And so that's what they do. You can take one Scripture out of context, <laughs> and you can make it sound um, any way that you want it to sound. Um, two, verse, two, two verses that says, what does Scripture say about polytheism? I want to look at um, John 14.6 and John 17.3. Um, is anybody somebody okay you got it which one you which one are you going to read 146 okay Jesus said to him I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me does that sound very polytheistic no. <laughs> not at all not at all what about John 17:3 somebody wants to read um, that and and this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Very good, very good. Yeah, so polytheism is not something that we find in Scripture. Um, the next point here says, these philosophers' next assumption was that religion evolved from polytheism to henotheism. Henotheism. Does anybody know what henotheism is? Okay, so this is a hybrid between polytheism and monotheism. So what it means is that there was a god um, over different nations. So uh, you had the god of the Jews, which was Yahweh. You had the god of the Canaanites, which was Baal. Uh, you had the god of the Philistines, who was Dagon. So we had, that, they say that this was the next series of um, evolution in our monotheistic views. And often um, they would say that the wars that we see between these different nations in scripture was really wars over gods. Mm -hmm. And they, these were just gods, different gods as armies, as nations fighting against one another. Um, so, you know, these, these philosophers, they assume that the Bible teaches um, this henotheism in the Old Testament because of these battles that's mentioned. And let's look in, I want to read 2 Kings 3.15. This is a really interesting section of Scripture. Very interesting section of Scripture. Uh, I've got it on the board. 2 uh, yeah, Kings Chapter 3. So if you got your Bible, flip over there, because I'm going to be here just for a second. got some stuff I want to read, quite a lengthy section for us to kind of get an idea of what's going on. So if we look at starting in verse 9, starting in verse 9, chapter 3, it says, So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a, a, a circuit of seven day's journey and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them then the king of Israel said alas for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab so what's going on here is Moab um, was becoming a real problem so these three kings came together and they decided they were going to fight against um, against the king of Moab so they started on this long journey, right? 
and they had to travel across the desert. But by the time they got to Moab, their soldiers were dying of thirst. They were thirsty, they were hungry, they were dehydrated, they were parched, if you can just imagine what this must have looked like. Let's look down in 15. Look down in verse 15. But now, bring me a minstrel. This is a musician. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is talking about Elijah. He said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. Now this is, this is something that would be really, I would love to sit here and exposit this. Because this is so powerful. But we're not going to exposit it because we're, we're trying to show um, some historical theology here on the Trinity. But I'll just I'll throw a zinger at you here. If you can just imagine being a soldier, being thirsty, parched, you just traveled across the desert, and the prophet of God says, uh, why don't you just go out there and dig some ditches? <laughs> you must have felt. I mean, you're already tired. You're already thirsty. How's this going to help anything? I mean, can you, can you just imagine being one of these soldiers? This really shows what faith is, right? It really shows where does your faith truly lie, right? And that's just a zinger, but I, wanna, I just want to throw that at you because this is, this is an interesting, very interesting passage of Scripture. I'm going uh, to continue reading here. It says, For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. So this is interesting. Skip, skip down real quick to uh, verse 21. It says, Now all the Moabites... So, so you can just imagine before we read verse 21. These soldiers have gone out and they've done what God has commanded them to do. They had faith enough to believe God and to understand that what he's going to do is going to be good and correct. So they actually went out and they dug trenches all night long out in the desert. So there's all these trenches as, as far as you can see across there, right? So now this is what happens, starting in verse 21. It says, Now all the Moabites heard that the king had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put their armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. They rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water. So what happens here is God causes all these trenches to be filled with water. So not only was the army able to drink, the water, but let's see what else happens with this water. It says that the sun shone on the water and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Then they said, this is the blood of the kings. They have surely fought together and they have slain one another. So what's going on here is they're used to seeing their land. This is their land, right? And they've never seen water in their land so they look out across and the way that the sun is reflecting on the water it looks like blood 
they knew that three kings had come against them. So they said, well, these three kings must have gotten a fight. And they slaughtered one another. So, man, that's awesome. So let's see what they do. It says, now therefore Moab to the spoil, says. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites, so that they fled before them, and they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. So this is an amazing thing, how that God provided for these, these people. This is a very interesting story. Very interesting story. And, but down in verse 26 is where it starts applying to what we're talking about. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he stood with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now this is where they start getting into this idea of henotheism. They're saying that this king, the king of Moab, he comes out on the city wall in front of his people and he slays his son in front of them. He's, he kills him as a sacrifice to their god who is uh, Chamash. Chamash was their god. He sacrifices his own son who is going to reign in his place in front of all the people. And then what, what this says is um, great wrath came against Israel and they departed from him and returned to their own land. So here what they're going to say is that God lost. Yahweh lost. Because this God that, that took and accepted this sacrifice, um, Chamash, he was so powerful that his wrath came down on Israel and they had to flee. So you see they start saying that we can see that there's these different gods of different nations and they're battling against one another in scripture. Right? That's where they start drawing some of this out of. So that's kind of interesting. But that's not really why that Israel fl fled. If you do any kind of exposition on this passage, which I highly recommend you guys study because it's very interesting passage of scripture. This has no mention of gods. This is just showing that the people uh, who saw this sacrifice, the people of Moab, worked into a frenzy. Um, and they went out like madmen. And Israel was like, yeah, let's just go home. <laughs> you know, it's not that Yahweh lost. It, it does not say that Yahweh lost, right? It just shows what they did. This is just a re recorded fact of what happened. But you can take this and spin it in different ways, and you can make it to say something that it's not saying. And that's what that these people are doing whenever you start looking at this. And it's kind of interesting how they do it. Um, but this is, just, this is just an example, and I thought it was an interesting example because this is a cool story that we read about in Second Kings. Any thoughts on that? got a question here it says does scripture validate 
other na nations' gods because they are mentioned in the text. It's a no-brainer question here. <laughs> no. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, <clears throat> the next point here says, using this framework, the 19th century philosophers challenged the idea that the Bible is consistently monotheistic. And they took um, Genesis 1. Um, if, if we look at Genesis 1, 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, so one of the things we can, we can see here is that the Bible confirms the fact that there was only one God who created all things. And therefore he reigns over all things because he created all things. Um, but these philosophers, they argue that even in the creation narrative uh, that there are two names for God. That is, that is seen here. And this, they say, confirms their framework of this el ev evolutionary development of religion that they think uh, that how we arrived at monotheism. Because they say, well, God, he's referred to as Yahweh, but he's also referred to as Elohim. As Elohim here in the Old Testament. So they're saying, you know, you're seeing two different, two different gods here. Um, and the he, what's interesting is if you look at the word Elohim, the H-I-M at the, at the end, the Him is actually the plural ending of a Hebrew noun. So it can be translated as gods. If you look at it, it can be translated as gods. Um, so, and we're going to get to why that this is kind of cool instead of it being shocking, like what they're saying, right? It's kind of a cool thing. But they're saying that, that they're seeing um, all these different, different uh, evolutionary process, even in Scripture, and they're trying to use the different names of God to support their case. But it, it just cannot do that. Um, I've got another question here. It says, in Genesis, two, uh, in Genesis 23, they assumed that God was saying that you can have no other gods greater than me, but what does this verse really mean? So I've got the verse here. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean? Is this is this giving us an allowance to have other gods? No. No. Well, you can say before, like you can say like before me, like that are above me, but you can also say before, like in my presence. Mm -hmm. So like you have like yes. a statue should not be in the presence of God. That's right. Or as a priority. Yep. Placement. Yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Because this this word before me it literally means in my presence. That's what it means. In in my presence. So, if God is omnipresent, <laughs> then mm -hmm. where can you go where there's any room for another God that's in His presence? There is no place. So there is no allowance. So you can. They can try to spin this and say. You know that this verse says well this shows that there's many gods that's not what this means not at all not at all the Bible very clearly teaches monotheism but this becomes prob problematic in church history and still today over the doctrine of the Trinity so um, when we get to the New Testament, the church affirms that God, 
the Father, God the Son, that God the Holy Spirit are each divine. And that they're all the while saying that we still hold to monotheism. And so that's where people start getting confused. Uh, and that's why that we're doing this study, because it's so important for us to be able to clarify this, because, you know, it was already pointed out that it is confusing whenever you start looking, especially at different people's views in church history and how they try to attack our view of the Trinity. Um, <clears throat> I got a quote here from Augustine. It says, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And I think that's a, an awesome statement. That's an awesome statement. So what he's saying here is that the things that were concealed in the Old Testament, concealed from the Old Testament saints, they were revealed in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus Christ came, he was um, the apex of our faith. He is all things that scripture points to. He is the reason um, that every verse is in the Bible. The Bible is always directly or indirectly about Christ in, in everything that we see. Um, so that's that's an important thing and you know the New Testament reveals God's character, re reveals, that's why it's so amazing when we go back and we read you know like Isaiah 53 or all these different passages of scripture that before Christ they probably would have been hard to understand but now that we have the New Testament and we can read we know who Jesus is and we we can go back and it fits the historic fact to the T of who Christ was and the way that he suffered and all the things that he went through for us so it's really amazing how that we can see all these things the next point here it says there is a perfect unity, a perfect hermeneutic between the Old Testament in all doctrine, and this includes the Trinity. Now that word hermeneutic is a big word. It's a whole um, six-month seminary class on understanding what hermeneutics is. But basically the way that I like to understand hermeneutics, I like to see it, I'm a musician, so I like to see it as harmony. You know, So if you hear an orchestra playing, um, if one wrong note is sounded, it stands out like a sore thumb. I don't know if you've ever been to a, to a high school um, musical mm -hmm. band program, and there's always the squeaker, you know, you hear that's hitting the wrong note, and you're like, ooh, that really stands out. That's what hermeneutics is. It takes all of Scripture, and you, and you, you interlace every verse from Genesis to Revelation, and they all fit together perfectly. And if there's one thing that's a squeaker, if there's one wrong note, then you're misunderstanding that verse. You're misunderstanding that squeaker, right? So you have to go back and study and try to understand how that fits into the whole context of Scripture. That's hermeneutics, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? We've had a study on Genesis and, uh, and, and saw how Genesis Revealed Jesus Christ at the very beginning. I mean, awesome. Yeah, that was an awesome study. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, so this next question here I have it says, "Can we see the Trinity in the Old Testament without eisegeting Scripture?" That's another word 
my brother here used the other night, eisegete, and I explained it, but I'll explain it again because it's a, a new term maybe to a lot of people. We have exegeting scripture and we have eisegeting scripture. Exegeting scripture means that we take the Bible and we draw the, two, the true meaning from the text. So we look at all the context, we look at the historical facts, um, we look at who it was written to, and we draw the meaning out. Eisegesis, which is what this, this question relates to, is where we take our own interpretations, what we want to believe, kind of like what we saw with these philosophers, and we insert it into the scriptures. And we say, the scripture says what I wanted to say. We eisegete our own opinions, our own history, uh, our childhood teachers, what our parents have taught us, what certain pastors have taught us. We take those things and we insert them into the scripture rather than drawing the true meaning out. Does that make sense? So, again, this question says, can we see the Trinity in the Old Testament without eisegeting, inserting our own opinions of the Trinity into Scripture? Simple question. I'll say yes. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can find the Trinity all through um, the Old Testament. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll read a couple of those. Some examples um, here. And first, I've got a point here to make before you read these. It says, we have already mentioned that one of the names of God, Elohim, has the f suffix him, which is, the, is in the plural form, which is an interesting word. So, <clears throat> one of the th ways that we can look at this word, Elohim, um, though the, these pagan philosophers, they say, well, this is showing multiple gods, but this could actually be indicating a triune God, too. A triune God that um, just within this name itself. Um, but the name doesn't demand that. So when we look at this, uh, the word Elohim, um, it doesn't demand that, that we must see the Trinity in, in this name. But it's just an interesting fact that it is a plural form of this Hebrew word. So now let's look at, at some um, <clears throat> at some examples of how that we can see the Trinity in the Old Testament. In Genesis one one, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. In verse two, we are in introduced to the Spirit of God who was moving over the surface of the waters. So this is one of the places we can see that. In Genesis one twenty six, it says, "Let us make man in our image." Mm -hmm according to our likeness. It's another place that we can see the Trinity. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Genesis 11.7 Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And then the most quoted Old Testament verse from the New Testament is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So 
one of the things we need to understand here. I've got a, a point here when the when the word Lord is spelled in all capital letters, like we see here in this uh, Psalm 110, uh, the translators make it a distinction between Yahweh and the lowercase word used, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that means Adonai. I don't know if you guys realize that, but if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that there's some places where, like in this verse, in Psalm 110:1, if you look in your Bibles, you're, you should have all caps, Lord in all caps, and you should have capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, which it's showing a distinction between Yahweh and Elohim. So we can see here the triune God as well whenever we look at Psalm 1101. Does that make sense? This is Adonai. Is Adonai the same thing as Elohim? Adonai, yeah. It's actually, the name is actually El Elohim Adonai. It's all one word. So sometimes we break it out and call it just Adonai or Elohim or Elohim Adonai. It's usually, it's usually listed synonymously as Adonai and Elohim, if that makes sense. Which is the title, is a title for God. Yahweh is God's name whenever we look at scripture. Yahweh is his name. Elohim is, is a title, a title for Christ. And we're out of time, so is there any last thoughts on this? I know we covered a, a lot, but I think it was, it's important stuff looking at a little bit of how the, that some of this has developed, uh, especially with, uh, with some of these philosophers. You had a large audience, a very large audience, who um, wants to come against us um, in our view of the Trinity and how that we can start uh, learning's apologetic. This has a little bit to do with apologetics too, and how that we can defend our faith, um, not just church history, but it kind of falls into both categories. And I know we we cover a lot, so hopefully we cover it well. But is there in, any questions or any last thoughts or comments on any of this? I think it's always interesting that uh, man has to, when he doesn't want to acknowledge the true God. He has to make his own because he's helpless. So when tragedies come, um, or if somebody wants to have power over someone, then they, they create a god to deal with that. So with tragedies, they create uh, they create a god who they're going to blame for what's happening. Um, if they're in need, they have to have a god who's going to rescue them. But in all those cases, no matter how they make it, like we read about all these things here. Um, they're just not going to acknowledge the true God. They are not going to give up their their worship of them, themselves and, yeah. and look to God for the answers. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I kept thinking too that um, when the Pharisees asked Jesus what is the greatest commandment, he actually backed it up a bit and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And then went on to say, Love the Lord your God and your neighbor. You know, yeah. Um, so even there, we're we're seeing <clears throat> the monotheism and how important that was to him, and the greatest principle, the greatest commandment. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And that's that is why it does get confusing when we say we live in a trinity, but we're monotheistic. <laughs> so. Takes a, and then I'm hoping that you're starting to understand 
the very first question I asked when we got to this course on the Trinity is, is there any way to, to describe the Trinity by an analogy that isn't heresy? And the, the answer is no, we can't. Um, and you're, you'll understand this the deeper we get into this, because we're going to get much deeper in understanding, helping us to understand the Trinity. We're just trying to lay out some, some things uh, for, to help us to understand where the world's coming from and, and how they see us as, um, as have, holding to the doctrine of the Trinity and, uh, and helping us to understand why that we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. So, all right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, um, Rick, you want to pray for us and dismiss us? All right. Lord Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us here and being with us this evening. We thank you for Mike and, and his preparation. We ask, Lord Father, that you would uh, forgive us our sins and let us see your face and let us understand who you are. Lord Father, I pray that you walk closely with us and that we will hang on to you. Lord God, may your name be praised in all that we do as we go forward this week. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Very good.